Church, I would ask you to turn uh, in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2. And of course, today we're departing from our usual uh, custom of going through a book, a, a verse or a section at a time, through expository preaching. I still hope to expose what is in the text uh, today, because that is uh, the only thing that, that we have, is the text of God's Word. His message communicated to us in it. Today, we're going to be beginning a series, and I'll be honest, I did not anticipate beginning this series uh, under, under the, the changes that have happened lately. But I still think it's important for us to consider what kind of church does God intend for us to be? Where does he intend for us to go? So I've entitled this series... Trenton values. What are the things that we are to value here? What are the things that God would have us to value? I've tried to rehearse four different little catchphrases, just handles that we can hang on to and help us remember where where we're going, uh, where, where we are, and who God intends for us to be. And the first one of those handles is called gospel-centered. What does it mean to be a, a gospel-centered church? I want to tell you a funny story first. I hope you'll find it's funny sometimes. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm married and I tell stories and my wife doesn't find them to be nearly as funny as I think they might be. Hopefully, you'll think this one is funny. When I was in high school, I was on a mission trip in northern Alabama and a church was hosting us there and they had placed us into host homes. Uh, members of the local church were uh, put a few of us up in extra rooms that they had and then we would be able to go uh, and do the things that we were doing that week in the mission trip. And a few of my buddies and I, we had orchestrated a way to end up in the same host home. Uh, well, on Sunday afternoon, there was a little bit of time built into our schedule. And the hosts were encouraged to do something fun with the people that were staying in their homes. And so I guess fun was left up to them to determine. And so they told us after Sunday lunch, they said, we're going to go... Uh, and show you a few things. So let's hop in the car. We're gonna we're gonna go take you somewhere. And we said, okay, that that sounds good. We'd like to, you know, get our bearings and see what there is to see around here. So we got in their car and we took off and we started going around the hills of northern Alabama. And they would point out a building to us, an old building that perhaps used to be something from their childhood, and they would tell a story about it. Then they would talk about a, you know, a house, maybe where a relative used to live. And they even took us by this old abandoned house, and it had some significance to them. And they would point out a mountain. You know, there's some hills and some mountains in northern Alabama, and they would point those out and mention some things to us. And you know, this was all well and good. But about after 45 minutes of this, it began to feel like we were just along for the ride on somebody else's trip down memory lane. And so I looked over at my buddy Rick, and he looked over at me, and we, we were kind of wondering, where are we going? When are we going to get there? And so after a couple of more minutes, one of us kind of mustered up the courage to say, hey, how far are we away from where we're going? And they kind of looked back at us, and a little surprise was on their face, and they said, oh, we're, we're not going anywhere. We're just having a good time. Friends, the reason that I share that story to you is because many churches are on that same car ride. They don't know where they're going. They might not even know where they are, but they're having the time of their lives. 
I want to protect us from drifting. I don't want us to be a church that ends up losing our vision of our mission. What is the mission that God intends for us to have? Are we just to kind of go along with the flow? Or are we to be somebody? Are we headed anywhere? Is there a destination? And how far away from that destination are we? And when would we ever know when we got there? In other words, we have to have a vision of where we're headed if we're ever going to get there. And so the first part of that vision is a gospel-centered church. I want to talk about four things over the next four weeks. But the first one, of course, appropriately, I think, has to do with our mission. Our mission as a church is to be a gospel-centered church. But what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? If, if your pastor has an invitation at the end of the sermon, does that make you a gospel-centered church? Or what if you're way up high on the list of churches in the State Baptist Convention and baptisms for the year? Does that make you a gospel-centered church? Or what if you have some of the best programs around and, and you have a great vacation Bible school and a great youth program and a great children's program? Does that make you a gospel-centered church? All of these things, of course, are important and, and great goals and, and are necessary. But, but what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? And after all, what is the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's the question that I'm going to seek to answer today through reading Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of gospel has God given us? What kind of gospel do we have here when we approach the scriptures? And my first point is this. God has given us a gospel that is God-centered. It has God as the center, center. it has God as the ultimate cause, and it has God as the goal. Let's look and read in the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2 to see how does the gospel, how does the Bible speak about us, and then how does the Bible and how does the gospel speak about God in this gospel message that God has given us by His grace. It says this, And you were dead. Those are the first Four words. And you were dead. This is a, a word about our condition. It's a word about who we are outside of Christ. We are dead of, of all of the pictures, of all of the images that God could have given us to describe what we were like before Jesus broke into our lives. He uses the word dead. It's a very, very stark picture. Because we know what do dead people do? Not much of anything. Dead people are dead. They don't, they don't move. They don't have feeling. They don't have senses. And you were dead. We're spiritually dead, it says. It's using this literal term to speak of our spiritual conditions. You were, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he says in that second part, going into verse 2, not only were you dead, but you were dead in something, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So that word walk is like a, a term that, that describes to us our pattern of life. Not only were we this way, but we were going that way. We were headed in a particular direction. We were walking. We had a certain pattern of life that was given over to this deadness, is what he seems to say here. You were dead, how? In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he elaborates. Not only were we walking, but we were following. 
So we weren't going aimlessly. We were following somebody who was taking us somewhere. Following who? The course of the world, it says. And moreover, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, so not only were we dead, not only were we dead by sinning and and living in our sin, not only were we walking this way, but we were following somebody. We were following something. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In a word, friends, we were deceived. We were under a spell. We were following Satan. Our hearts were blackened. They were darkened. They were dead. We were doing exactly what we wanted to be doing by following the enemy as he was leading us by the nose away from God. Among whom we all once lived. So here's another word picture, live. Not only were we we dead, not only were we walking, not only were we following We were living in the passions of our flesh. In other words, we were doing exactly what we wanted to do. We were acting out of a set of desires. And it even says that here. We were living out of the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. In other words, we were living out of our wills and our wills were turned away from God. Our our wanter was broken. Our wanter, if you want to speak this way, our wanter inside of our heart wanted bad things. And so we were acting out of that heart. Uh, We were drinking the water that came from the bad spring. Why did we have bad fruit? Because we had a bad tree and it had a bad root. We were by nature, it says. It not only speaks about how we were dead, what we were following, who we were following, and and who we were walking after, and, and how we were living, but it says a word about our nature. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So far, friends, the picture has been fairly bleak. The first three verses have spoken all about us, and all of the information that we get about ourselves is not looking very good. It's talking about how we were running 100 miles an hour in the way that we should not have been running. We were lost. We were dead. If we believe what Jeremiah 17 says about our heart, it says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can trust it? Desperately sick, some translations say. Romans chapter 3 reminds us that there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And friends, it even says no one even seeks after God in Romans chapter 3. No one even seeks after God. Friends, the picture is bleak before verse 4. But then verse 4 opens with two of perhaps the, the most beautiful words in all of the New Testament. And I would say perhaps two of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. But God. So far, friends, what have we contributed? We've contributed nothing but our rebellion. We've contributed nothing but sin. We have contributed nothing but running away from God. And verse 4 opens and it says, But God, being rich in mercy. Now these attributes of God. We've heard all of the attributes about us that were leading us away from Him. We were running 100 miles an hour the other way. But now we get to see these attributes of who God is and what He is like. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. In other words, why did he save us? Because he desires to be merciful. Why did he offer salvation to us? Because of the great love with which he loved us. And then it says this in verse 5. Another comma, another, another dependent clause. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So when did God save us? While we were dead. 
while we were still running 100 miles an hour the wrong way. Even when, it's a, it's a word about time, when or while, even while we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? We can insert the word God here, I think, but, but God, and all these commas, all these commas, and then he, this. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel, pure and undiluted. You were running away. I was running away. We were lost. We were caught in the snare of sin. We were deceived by the enemy. We were doing the things that we wanted to do, and the things that we were wanting to do were about to kill us. But God, while we were dead, he did what? He made us alive. This is good, good news. This is the best News, in fact. He made us alive. Together with Christ. So it has to do with the work of Jesus. He made us together with someone, with Christ. And then he says in this little parenthetical statement, By grace you have been saved. As if to tell us it has nothing to do with your works. It has nothing to do with your good intentions. It has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. It has nothing to do with your good Deeds By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is an odd way to put it. We are already now, even though we were still walking on this earth, even though we are still sinners, we're not with God in heaven yet. Somehow, in some sense, we're already seated with him in the heavenly places. Somehow our security in Christ, somehow our salvation is so secure and is so set that we are spoken of as already being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. For what purpose? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. In other words, so faith is something different from a work. It's not a deed that we do. It's not something that we muster up inside of us. And then God sees this good that we've mustered up inside of us. And he gives us salvation because of the work that we've done. No, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that nobody can brag. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for glory. Friends, as we read those ten verses and and, and meditate on what they mean, we notice something. We notice a powerful message. In short, we notice how God-centered the gospel seems to be. The emphasis is taken off of man. The emphasis is taken off of how much good we might can do or how we might be able to earn salvation. No, we could never earn salvation. But the emphasis is put on God and the work that He does and how He makes the dead people to live. Just like in Ezekiel, the the dry bones are there in the valley of vision and and the dry bones are there. There's no skin on them. and And it says in the Word of God, they are very dry. As if to emphasize the point that there is no life here. And what does God do? He says prophesy. And the, and the man begins to prophesy. And what happens? The bones begin to rattle. And the next thing you know, a little bit of flesh comes on the bones. And the next thing you know, there's a whole army of people who have been raised up from dead bones. Friends, that's a picture of us. We were the dead and dry and dusty bones. And God made us alive. Why and in what way? Not so that we could boast. 
That's why he takes the emphasis off of us and puts the emphasis on God and his work. Friends, much of the modern church today is very man-centered and has produced a gospel that places man at the center, man in the captain's chair, and man as the goal. I'll read this from J.I. Packer, a comment that I mentioned on Wednesday night to those gathered here on Wednesday night. He talks about the difference between the old gospel and the new gospel, the new gospel that, that we have come to become so familiar with. And he says the old gospel was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty in mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach men to worship God, the concern of the new seems to be making him to feel better. The subject of the old gospel was God and his ways with men. The subject of the new gospel is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. Friends, the reason I emphasize this, the reason that I say we must be a gospel-centered church and we must have a God-centered gospel is because if we have ourselves at the center, if we believe that when we look to the Old Testament and every Old Testament story is somehow a story about us and we're the main character of all the Bible stories and that the world and the universe really revolves around us, we're going to end up with a very weak God who's not worth worshiping. But if we have a gospel that puts God at the center, we will bow down and worship him. No longer will these notions of a weak and helpless man upstairs who waits in passive impotence for us to determine what we want to do for him. A God-centered gospel reminds us that if it weren't for God, we would not be in Christ today. After all, we were dead. Friends, this is why we must preach the gospel. This is why in our Sunday school classrooms and in our Bible study groups and, and here, yes, from this pulpit, I will seek to preach the gospel that puts God at the center. Why? Because that is the gospel that saves. I have no power. You have no power. I have no salesmanship ability. I was a salesman for a period of time. And the, the one thing that I learned there is that a lot of people end up saying no. But the reality is, the reality is, is that when, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him to come to a new life. And it is only this gospel that can look so attractive, that can open the eyes of our hearts. And then we respond in repentance and faith and we give our lives to him and we live the changed life. <laughs> That is why at the end of our services, friends, I plead with people. I plead with them. Yes, would you respond to the gospel? Would you, would you look to it and see that it is good? And would, you, would you throw yourself on Jesus? Because for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a gospel truth that we have. But we also know, friends, that salvation is from the Lord. So we put God at the center of our gospel. We don't want to so overemphasize man's part in responding to the gospel that we somehow take God out of the picture. It says, but God, as best I can tell, no two sweeter words are recorded anywhere in the Bible. Except perhaps the three words that we see in the English Bible. As Jesus is on the cross, he says, it is finished. Why did God save us? Verse 5 tells us he is merciful. When did God save us? While we were still dead. And how did God save us? By making us alive. Friends, it's all about him. 
It's all about His glory. It's all, it's all about His work. If you are in Christ today, friends, it's because of God. We love Him, yes, but we love Him because He first loved us. A God-centered gospel makes us bow down and, and, and worship Him. Friends, I want to tell you two stories of, of two of the most spiritually dark and just moments that made me shudder in my life. The first one was when I was doing some evangelism and and uh, I really love doing evangelism. As a matter of fact, when I met with the, your committee here, uh, when, when we were considering my coming here as a pastor, I said that one of the things that I would really love to do in normal circumstances is get out and knock on doors and, and tell people about the church and moreover tell them about Jesus and then train other, people's to, other people to do the same thing, to take folks with me, to tell them about the one who saves. Why? Because if they don't hear, they will never have a chance to repent. And if they don't repent, they will never enter the kingdom of God. Friends, some 155,000 people every day march toward eternity. That's about how many people die per day across the world. Many without Christ. They need to hear the gospel but the first time, the first story, was a story uh, of me sharing the gospel with a man in a trailer park in this town. And, and uh, knocked on his door, and after a couple of moments, he came to the door. I could hear someone moving around in there, and, and he came up to the door, and he looked like he had had kind of a rough day. This was at the end of the weekend. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. This man came. He kind of had bloodshot eyes, and and uh, and he, he looked like he had been watching television inside, and um, really just uh, did not look like he was in a very good way, to be, to be quite blunt. And he came to the door, and as we were talking, and this is back in the day, probably some, goodness, 15 or 17 years ago, and uh, I remember asking him one of the questions that we, we asked folks, and I said, if, if you were to die tonight, do you believe that you would go to heaven? And he looked me straight in the eyes, and with the most sober, now this man was not sober at the time, but he looked at me in a sober, serious, serious as a heart attack type look and said, there is no way I will go to heaven tonight if I die. And so I appreciated his honesty. I appreciated his ability to examine his life, examine himself. And so we shared the gospel with him. We told him that, that friend, there is no sin, that the, that the mercy of Jesus cannot cover. Would you, would you just turn? Would you see him as good today? Would you, would you turn and, and throw yourself on the mercy of Christ? Sadly, that day he did not, and I don't know whatever became of this man. But another story I'll tell you of how, friends, perhaps the gospel that we have, we have thought of has, has not become, a, in many cases, I'm not saying about you or this church or any individual in particular, but I think in America generally, our gospel has become less God-centered and, and a little more man-centered. And I'll give you an example of where I saw this cash out in the life of someone. When I was in college, I went on a college ministry outing. We went to uh, up, up in the high country of North Carolina. There's some ski slopes there. It was December, January, February, and we were on a ski trip. But the leader of this trip didn't want it just to be a ski trip. He wanted us to talk about spiritual things. And so he got us together in one of the larger of our rooms that night, and we began to talk about the gospel. And, and he was just trying to, to, to pull some things out and to, and to start some gospel conversations. And he asked the question, he said, well, well, well tell me, I mean, what is the gospel? And and after a couple minutes of nobody really wanting to offer anything, one young man who, 
who just quite frankly was living very far from the Lord and, and wasn't showing any fruit that he was in Christ, but had come along to the trip for one reason or another, he kind of started out by saying, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, I know the gospel. You, you, you admit your sin, you confess, and you believe, and, and God lets you into heaven, and I've done all that. Friends, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that perhaps some of the way that we have spoken about the gospel makes it such a work of us that if we just do the right things, if we just utter the right phrases, if we just walk down an aisle and fill out a card and say a prayer, then somehow, somehow we might be right with God, even though our lives have never been changed, even though Christ has never entered and messed us up and made us new. Friends, a God-centered gospel, I think, will prevent some of that, I hope. We need to preach the gospel that explains sin, that proclaims Christ, that calls for a response, and that pleads with people to turn. Would you turn? This is the gospel that we need. It's the gospel that our community needs. A God-centered gospel, lastly, it makes us humble. It has been said, friends, that a prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. A prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. Now, why would that be? It would be because those who are genuinely believers, those who have genuinely been converted, are those who understand that they have no good works. They have no reason that God should allow them into heaven. And this is what Paul says here in verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. He says, It is not because of anything you've done. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. That's why a God-centered gospel... And a gospel-centered church will preach a gospel that will make men and, and women humble. Because we understand, we understand that the gospel deeply causes us to have a different kind of attitude. This is why we, we seek to rehearse here, I am the worst sinner that I know. We are the worst sinners that we know. Why? Because if we think that we have any righteousness, we will never run to Jesus. If we think we are good people, we will never run to Jesus. That's why self-righteousness is so, is so bad. Self-righteousness, the reason self-righteousness is bad is not because it's just an, it's an uncouth character trait, right? And nobody likes a self-righteous person in the room. The reason that self-righteousness is so bad is because if you are self-righteous, you will never think that you need Christ. That's why we look full, we look the gospel full in its face and we see what it says about us, that we are dead, that we were following our own way, that we were running away from Christ when he came and sought us out. Those, because in the words of Jesus, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And Jesus said, I came to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Secondly, the second point, I've only got two points today. We need a gospel. We have a gospel. The Bible has given us a gospel that produces a new kind of life. Do you see the point that is, that is put here in, in just such close proximity? Right here together, mashed in, is all of these words about how if you are in Christ, it's not because of your good works. It's not because of something that you did if you're in Christ. And then he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. So wait a second. We're supposed to do good works. Just don't get the cart before the horse. Yes, we're supposed to do good works, but don't ever think that your good works will save you. 
Do you see this? When the gospel really comes in, when the gospel messes you up, when the gospel changes your life, you understand that you're not there because of your good works, but now that you're here, you ought to do good works. In other words, it cashes out in a changed kind of life. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read this, and I hope we'll be able to see ourselves in the, these words of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 uh, say this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But don't stop there. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Friends, that's the beauty of the gospel. Is that no matter what kind of pattern of life you used to live, or no matter what things uh, keep your conscience away, your, how your conscience keeps you up at night about what you've done years ago before Christ, such were some of you, no matter what you've done, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The, the point seems to be there is no sin, there is no sin that can separate you from the love of God as long as you are repenting and turning away from it and giving your life to Jesus. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful gospel, but he says to the church in Corinth, he says, don't ever, don't ever think of yourself as more holy than those around you because such were some of you, but you were washed. It's a new life. The gospel that is real and the gospel that is God-centered, it cashes out in a new pattern of life. And it reminds us that while our good works will never save us, our good works do show who is saved. Paul emphasizes the same things in Titus chapter 3. Uh, as we, uh, we actually visited this passage a, a few nights ago um, on Wednesday night, I believe. Titus chapter 3 says these words in verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish. Remember, you can hear echoes of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. You can hear echoes of that. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, slaves to various passions and pleasures. He talks about our, our condition before Christ as being enslaved. We were given over to our desires. We wanted to do those things. We were running away. Our wills were turned away from God and our, our wanter was bad. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4. But when the goodness, you can almost hear, but God. From Ephesians chapter 2. But God. You can almost hear that in Ephesians 2, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, what happened? He saved us. God is at the center of the gospel. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, no. But, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, which is the opening of the eyes of our heart, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. For what purpose? So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful... To devote themselves to good works. In other words, 
What is the end of the gospel? The end of the gospel, the goal of the gospel is a changed life lived as a witness in front of other people in these dark and dying days. When others need to hear the gospel that we have, but first they need to see the witness of a changed life. Friends, we need to be a gospel-centered church, not simply in our message, but also in our lifestyle. We need to show people who the God of the gospel is, that he offers salvation to anyone who will confess his name, to anyone who will repent and believe, to anyone who will turn and see him as good. But then it doesn't stop there. Yes, God saves us from our old way of life, but he saves us to a new way of life. This is why when I get to do baptism services, perhaps my favorite part of the baptismal service is you know what pastors say many times in Baptist churches when they're getting ready to baptize somebody, they say, I baptize you, my sister, or baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, and what? Raised to walk in new life. Friends, we need to be a gospel-centered church, and that means two things. It means putting God at the center of the gospel, and it means making sure that we understand the gospel in such a way that it cashes out in a new kind of life. We don't put any hope in our good works. Our good works can't save. They can never get us across the bridge. They can never span the gap. But for those who have been changed by Jesus, they will live a new kind of life. And friends, I would say if the gospel has not produced a new life in us, we need to seriously evaluate whether we have really understood the gospel of grace or not. Friends, God has placed us here in Trenton, Kentucky for such a time as this. He's put us here for a reason. He's placed us here to make much of him. Our neighbors need to hear the story of his grace, of this big God and his big gospel, and they need to see people who evidence the fact that they have been changed by this gospel. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The only thing we have in a town of 386 is our reputation. If we have a bad reputation out in the community, people will not want to hear our gospel message. If they see the pattern of our lives and the pattern of our life doesn't match up with the gospel, they want to hear our message. They, They will not want to hear the message of our gospel. So let's be a people, yes, who get the message right and who put God at the center of the gospel, but who also live a life that's been changed and and transformed by this grace out of out of worship. We worship him now, but not because we have to, but because we want to. So what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? It means that we interpret all of our lives through the lens of the gospel. We begin more and more to think of ourselves as the worst sinners that we know, but also the most forgiven people that there are because of what Jesus did in his perfect life and in his death on the cross. We begin desire to, to desire to make radical sacrifices of our own preferences, our own opinions, our own traditions. Why? So that the gospel can go across the coffee table and across the street and across the world. Because the time, friends, is growing short. People are marching every day, even our neighbors, toward an eternity either with Christ or without Him, and they need to hear the words of hope. How will they hear? If no one is sent, let's be a gospel centered church.
To do that, it means that we really believe what the Bible says about us and about God. We were far, God brought us near. We didn't do the work, God did. We were marching to the beat of our own drum and God changed our life. And in gratitude to Him, in gratitude to Him over what we could not do, we worship Him by living our lives as a living sacrifice. Poured out for Him to live a changed life. Trenton, let's be a gospel-centered church. Let's hold on to that handle. Let's take that message. Let's do everything that we can to get it to everyone who will listen to us. And then let's commit to look to the scriptures and to live lives that have been transformed by this message. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for making your word so clear. I pray that nothing that I have said would have been a distraction to what your word has already said. I have no words. I have no novel things to say. I have no anecdotes or no, no pithy, uh, pithy stories that will do any spiritual good. But Lord, you have the words of life. As the disciples say in John chapter 6, when, when Jesus looks at them after a, a great multitude had left and didn't want to hear Jesus anymore, after he had just said some very hard things in John chapter 6, Jesus looks to his disciples and says, Will you go away too? Are you going to leave me too? And they say, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of life. God, I pray that we would be people who would believe this so deeply that it would cash out in a new kind of transformed life. Would you do that among us? And Lord, I even pray today that as I have preached what, what has just been... Every time I look to Ephesians 2, it's just a, a, a passionate a, a passion wells up within me over, over the grace of the gospel and how I didn't deserve it and I didn't earn it, but you did it for me and you gave it to me as a gift. Lord, I pray that, that perhaps even this morning someone here, someone here has heard that message for the first time and, and they want to give their lives to you. I pray they would do that today in our time of response or, or, or after uh, just come up to me and say, Today, I believe the gospel for the first time. Can you show me what to do now? Lord, I pray that you would do that. In the name of Jesus, amen.